Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, <laughs> Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com, and if you want to help out this program, you can. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A, V as in victory, S-K-Y. It is Tuesday, September 6th, and this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Take This Job and Shove It Tuesday, and here's why. I'll tell you why, and I think you all know why, because aldermen all over the city of Chicago are saying, take this job and shove it. Good God. Or we could also call it another one bites the dust. Another one bites the dust. Yesterday was Labor Day. Happy Labor Day, D. Hope you had a nice Labor Day. Thanks. You too. Uh, I had a really nice Labor Day. I wrote two, two columns. Yeah, <laughs> I was laboring on Labor Day. Uh, but uh, in the midst of uh, writing my columns, I got a uh, breaking news flash update. I think Frank, it was listener Frank. Thank you, Frank. Uh, sent me Greg Pratt's, uh, I think it was Greg Pratt's tweet. The first thing that broke the news at uh, Sue Garza, Sue Sadlowski Garza, the alderman from the 10th Ward, good friend of the show. Sue Sadlowski Garza uh, was not going to run for re-election. Two terms and out. Who's the guy in full house that go out uh, here? That's what it is. Out uh, here Tuesday. Joey, Joey, right? (laughs) Joey's like the friend of of the father, I think. Or is he an uncle? I think he was an uncle. Whatever. Uh, Anyway, I was only partly paying attention to that show. That was more my kids. But, uh, yes, they're quitting. Uh, uh, I've never seen anything like this. And Dennis and I have been talking about this for a while. So I reached out to Greg Pratt. Thought it would be a good idea to bring Greg Pratt on and get his thoughts on why all these aldermen are leaving. Uh, I think D you may have a point there. <laughs> Dave's like, I can't take this Lori like for another minute. <laughs> so I know Sue Sadlowski Garza. Um, I remember when she first ran and it was just, just like a breath of fresh air coming out of the 10th ward. It was for Doliac and Pope and all these just like machine tyrants. Uh, just controlling the lives of everybody. And uh, then they would, uh, Pope was a head of, swore his allegiance to uh, Mayor Rahm and Mayor Daly. So, you know, they were really tough with their constituents, but uh, very compliant with the powers that be. Uh, and Sue Sadlowski Garza came out of the Chicago Teachers Union and uh, was running with the uh, backing of the Teachers Union, a close ally of Karen Lewis. Uh, and she was elected. It was a very close election. Everybody was jubilant. Uh, yeah, lefty wins. And now here it is eight years later. She said, I've had enough. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, 
interesting little turn here in Chicago. I've never seen it. People always said, you know, we need term limits. We need term limits. Well, guys, I think you're getting them, even though you don't officially have them, but we're sort of having them. Uh, and then as no sooner had um, Sue Sadlowski Garza announced that she was not seeking re-election, then I started getting uh, a text from all my political junkie friends telling me, look out, Ariel Robroyas of the 30th Ward is next. He's going to step down next. Uh, he's uh, as of, as I speak here, he's not made that announcement, but uh, who knows? He may be next. It's uh, um, I will now hold back on my uh, theories as to why this is going on and entertain some from Greg Pratt. But I have to tell you, I've never seen, i got to say, I've never seen so many sitting aldermen uh, step down, you know. Uh, and uh, I'm thinking back, as I say this, in general, they keep that job as long as they can, even, even if it's just like out of stubbornness. You know, even, even if they're like, like a, a great athlete who sticks around after even after it's obvious that he's lost uh, the edge that he had that made him a champion or one of the great ones, they just stick around because, you know, they love being Alderman. They love the name Alderman. So uh, I've never said anything like this and um, not quite sure what it means for Chicago politics. I'm hoping that uh, it means what we've had. I have to admit uh, the last four years have been more democratic small D democratic in the Chicago city council. I think it is by and large an improvement. There's more discussion. There's more debate. Uh, I don't always agree with the discussion of the debate. And sometimes I think they're intentionally misleading, but it's better than it used to be. And then of course there's close votes. Mayor does just not issue a proclamation uh, and uh, get it rubber stamped automatically. It's always like some, there's that maneuvering alderman, uh, excuse me, mayor Lori Lightfoot holding back on legislation because she's afraid that she what may not get the 26 votes she needs to pass it, or she may have to, uh, she doesn't want to have to veto a legislation. Doesn't want to have to go through that. So it's, yeah, it's more, it's more like Springfield or Washington in that regard, more democracy. And I think that overall is better for the city of Chicago. So, uh, and the other challenge for me, as I just said to Dennis before we went on the air, is that uh, I take pride in my ability to name every alderman. There's 50 of them. I, I think we're going to have to raise that white flag, white flag on that one, D. If, if so, if like we have 30 new aldermen in the city of Chicago, I, I don't know. That's tough. And then plus, I like, I got the old memory. So who was I having a conversation? I think I was having a conversation with Gregory Pratt, who we're going to reach out to any uh, moment now uh, to come on the show, Chicago Tribune political reporter. I was having a conversation with Gregory. Uh, we were talking about council wars in the days of Harold Washington and a crucial city council vote as to whether the city count, who voted for uh, Tim Evans and who voted for Gene Sawyer. O- only two political junkies would have this conversation, ladies and gentlemen. And I started going down the roster. Well, see, first ward, Fred Rohde would have voted for Eugene Sawyer. Second ward, Alderman Bobby Rush would have voted for Tim Evans. Third ward, Alderman Dorothy Tillman would have voted for Tim Evans. Fourth ward, Alderman. T- okay, on and on and on. And, okay, when I was, I was re- alluding to a city council from 1987. <laughs> so something's got to give with my memory. Either I got to start forgetting who was in the city council in the 1980s, or I, you know, just have to raise the white flag and knowing every alderman uh, in the year 2023. Wow. So um, that'll be a challenge for me and a challenge for uh, the city. Uh, one other interesting little tidbit, and I uh, haven't talked about this um, yet. Uh, I got a text from Dennis. want to say it was 
I forget what night it was, but it may have been Friday night. Uh, and I've been pondering this one uh, for a couple of days now. So if anybody out there uh, has figured it out, just shoot me a, uh, a email a message or a um, Facebook message. Uh, is that really Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, trying out for American Idol from the first year of American Idol? Dennis sent me a uh, a link to a, a clip that had been floating around the Internet on Friday night. And it, the woman sure looks like Marjorie Taylor Greene, and she sure behaves like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, she cannot sing at all, uh, and I have no idea if Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, can sing. But if it is her, I have my doubts, even though it looks like her and sounds like her. I now can understand where she's coming from, because the behavior exhibited by that contestant in that clip is very similar to the behavior Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, displays all the time. Sort of like a belligerence and an arrogance mixed with a daffiness. Yeah, like a little chip on the shoulder, uh, right in the face of the judges. Randy Jackson and Simon were telling her she can't sing. And she goes, well, I think I can sing. So anyway, if anybody out there has any insights on that, let me know. All right, without further ado, I'm going to bring on Gregory Pratt, uh, distinguished Chicago Tribune political reporter and the man uh, who broke the story, as far as I know, and I'm going to give you credit, Gregory, whether or not it's true, uh, that Sue Sedlowski-Garza was uh, not uh, going to run for re-election. I'm giving you credit for that because you're the first person I saw write about it. So as far as I'm concerned, you broke the story. So first of all, welcome back to the show, Cotter. And, Thank uh, you, and I, I did break it, and in fact, I broke it while laying on a mattress at the mattress store, so <laughs> that's uh, that's some Labor Day uh, festivities right there for you. All right, so how did you break it? Just uh, give away all your secrets. How did you know that she was stepping down? It was Again, it was on Labor Day yesterday. Go ahead. Well, I saw, I saw Sue at the Labor Day parade on Saturday, and she said, hey, Greg, I'm going to uh, good to see you. I'm going to give you a call on Monday. I said, Sue, is that what I think it, is that about what I think it's about? And she said, I'll call you. And so I, I knew what was happening because Sue Garza, um, you know, probably isn't, you know, it's, it's a tease that's, that's pretty clear, you know, if you have any sense in your head, you know? And so it was, uh, I was, uh, expecting it uh, you know we talked in the afternoon she told me what was going on and for the aspiring reporters out there there is no substitute for seeing people in person and talking to them and shaking their hands and that's how uh that's how you get quote-unquote scoops yes all right before we go uh, delve into the scoop uh itself and what it means uh i have to say the labor day parade is on saturday it's in sugar's ward the 10th ward on the far southeast side and you're absolutely correct uh, I remember going to the Labor Day parade in her ward. I think it was in um, 2018, and Pritzker was marching in the parade. Uh, this is before he was elected governor, and a relatively unknown candidate uh, named Lori Lightfoot was marching in the parade as well. And she was just very eager and happy to be photographed with anybody. So we took a bunch of pictures of her with uh, producer Dennis, who's towering over her. And Dennis is a really tall guy. So you're absolutely correct. Aspiring journalists out there, you want to see some politicians in the flesh? You want to see elected officials and would-be uh, uh, elected officials? Go to that Labor Day parade. Uh, I presume it's going to be a perennial, you know, now that she's stepping down, even though she's stepping down. Um, One can hope. It's a nice, it's a nice parade. And, you know, anybody who, 
you probably have some listeners who haven't ever been to the southeast side and they need to get down there yeah all right all right so let's talk about uh sue sedlowski garza her career her significance in the chicago city council and why uh she's stepping down we'll start uh with her significance in the chicago city council um what is in your opinion uh her legacy as an older woman go ahead well, she she represented a time when, uh, you know, the the year 2015 is always going to be a big year for Chicago progressive politics, because that was the year that we for the first time ever uh, as a city uh, had a um, incumbent establishment mayor get pushed into a runoff by progressive forces. Uh, the CTU was really at the forefront of uh creating the emotional energy and the political energy and the juju necessary for that uh, with Karen Lewis and Rahm Emanuel. And she didn't run, but she supported Chewy. And at the, at the heart of that was, uh, was the daughter of oil can Sedlowski who ran against an entrenched uh, incumbent, incumbent machine guy, uh, John Pope. And uh, barely beat him, but she beat him. And she she showed that there was a path for really left-wing progressive people, especially against um, the establishment, the machine. And that was her thing. She was there, and she was the voice for working people and for, uh, for the left, really, before uh, they had a lot more reinforcements. Obviously, Carlos was there, too, with her, but um, those are different dynamics, uh, but, you know, she was just she was just a big deal in that way. And then on a personal level, everybody likes Sue Garza. Yeah. yeah. But doesn't mean you agree with everything, but everybody likes Sue Garza. Yeah. And uh, I think I was talking to you about this, uh, or maybe I was talking to many people about this, obsessively talking about politics, even when I'm not in front of a microphone. Uh, I've said this on the air many times. The city council is like a uh, high school cafeteria. There's all these little clicks around uh, and this one sits with that one. And, and it's not only, it's not usually ideology. It's not always ideology. I should say that determines which table of the cafeteria you're going to sit at. And I remember when uh, profiling Sue Sedlowski Garza, again, as uh, Gregory says, she ran as a progressive, a Karen Lewis, uh, alder woman. She was very proud of her close uh, relationship with Karen Lewis and uh, but she always she told me that she really enjoyed the company of Michelle Smith from the 43rd Ward, like to sit and talk and chat and help her out. And Michelle Smith is a, like the personification of a Democratic centrist. Yeah, I, I think that's about all you could say from a very centrist, uh, well to do Lincoln Park Ward, far different in uh, almost every way from the 10th Ward where Sue Sadlowski Garza, born and raised. Uh, What are these dynamics, Gregory? Help explain it to people who may not understand it, that uh, reign in the Chicago City Council. Well, uh, relationships matter, right? And they matter in politics. And and some people just don't like each other. And it's really entertaining to see. And some of, uh, you know, you have 50 people, you know, a a decent number of them, are narcissists, you know, a decent number of them uh, are scoundrels, you know. We have, what, four indicted sitting uh, aldermen in the last uh, session, you know, and then you have a variety of personalities and egos, and it's, it is fascinating to see who likes who. Like Alderman Matt O'Shea, who is a centrist, uh, more conservative alderman, um, 
there was an incident where Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez uh, had uh, felt she was threatened by Alderman Cardenas because she had tweeted about a contract involving George Cardenas's brother. And uh, Matt O'Shea was like sticking up for her. And she had made a comment to me there at city council that, you know, uh, he was the only one who like said something about it. And, and, you know, these Matt O'Shea and uh, Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez are strange med fellows indeed. And so you have all these uh, really uh, interesting relationships in high school is, is the best way to define it where it's like, well, this person's cool. This person's too much like me. So I have to balance it out, you know? So you get like the nerd who hangs out with the jocks because the jocks want you to think that they do have a brain and, <laughs> and blah, 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 you know, but it's, it's very entertaining. Uh, I did not know about O'Shea and Rosanna. And that is, uh, that is a pair of strange bedfellows because as people who listen to this show know Rosanna uh, is at the forefront of, or of what used to be called the defund the police movement. I don't know what it's called anymore. I don't know if anybody says defund the police except for Marjorie Taylor Greene, who says defund the FBI. Uh, and uh, so it, I think it's been pretty much abandoned by elected officials. Uh, and Matt O'Shea is from the 19th Ward in the far southwest side of the Chicago Beverly area. Big supporter of police, big supporter of uh, the Fraternal Order Police and has to uh, run for re-election, uh, Gregory, knowing that Catanzara of the Fraternal Order Police could run someone to Adam from the right that could give him trouble. Uh, so very strange bedfellows indeed. Not quite too sure what to make of what you just told me. Well, and, and you know, that's not to say they're going to be endorsing each other or even that they're buddies, but he stood up for her and they they have a respect there, uh, you know, that that's real, right? It, it based, based around that human connection. And it's, you know, they're aldermen, so so we can, uh, uh, we can laugh at them and we do laugh at them and we critique them and we investigate them and we talk to them. Uh, but they are people, you know, they're people who came up in the uh, – in their wards, they are people who, uh, even the most ignoble of them has some noble intentions somewhere in there. You know, like if, uh, if you had a conversation with Alderman Burke, uh, he would, you know, he knows every inch of that neighborhood. And, uh, you know, there's all sorts of bad things you can say about Burke. And uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't, uh, but I bet you could have a great conversation with him about the corner of 55th and Pulaski and and how that area has changed and about people he's helped and all of these things uh so it's just it's just interesting uh the way relationships unfold and who likes who and who doesn't like who it's just it's just weird all right we'll get to ed burke uh in a bit because he's as i understand it one of the uh he's indicating that he will, will run for re-election if there was anybody you would expect wouldn't run it would be ed burke but before we get to him uh let's to talk a little bit about uh, Sue Sedlowski, Garza, and progressives. Uh, as you indicated when you began, and I agree with you, uh, she represented a wave of progressism that was really at its peak, I want to say, in 2015 in many ways. A very strong citywide candidacy by Jesus Garcia, forcing Mayor Rahm into a runoff. Uh, here it is eight years later, and uh, Sue Sedlowski Garza is, is uh, deciding not to run for re-election. And I know uh, on the left flank, we've had people on the show who've been critical of her uh, for some of the decisions she's made regarding General Irons and the ward. So what does it say, in your humble opinion, about local progressive politics in 2023 that Sue Sedlowski Garza is stepping down? Go ahead. Uh, well, it's interesting. I mean, Sue was absolutely going to get a pretty vigorous challenger over um, – over general iron and uh you know that's fair 
And, uh, you know, I, I had people, um, tweeting at me that she's not a progressive and it's like, Oh, she's definitely a progressive, uh, whether, well, you know, I, I can see her side of, uh, of general iron. Um, and I certainly understand the, the environmentalist side of that, but it's like, um, the thing about liberals and progressives, and you know this better than I do, is that they like to eat each other, you know, and 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 that's that's always been the fight. And, you know, you're not progressive enough. You're not woke enough. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. And uh, and there's there's some critique there. There's some fairness of that. You know, I remember um, especially because people. um people use that word as a talisman, right? Like Mayor Lori Lightfoot will tell you she's a progressive mayor and she's progressive on some issues, but really she's a centrist, you know, and, and, uh, and, uh, Rahm Emanuel, you know, Rahm Emanuel might tell you he was a progressive and, you know, that's, that's a bunch of BS, you know, like the, the number of issues that he's a, a progressive on are probably pretty small. Uh, Lori's, uh, Lori Lightfoot's are, uh, smaller too, um, but she's got a few of them, you know, that that's legit. But uh, when Sue Garza leaves, you know, I'm not sure who's going to replace her. I'm not sure who's going to beat her. Um, who's going, I'm not sure who's going to win the race to replace her. I know she's got somebody in mind that she wants to take her seat. Um, but it is, it is a, um, I don't know if it's a full setback for the progressive movement in city council, because there are plenty of other people uh, but in a lot of ways, uh, she had an energy and a weight and an ability to get things done that will be hard to replace. That said, you know, time replaces us all. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I would say that uh, Sue Sedlowski Garza was true uh, to her progressive roots in her tenure at the city council. Uh, and I say this, uh, Gregory, uh, because she she took opposite. She opposed what she thought were regressive taxes. And to me, from my vantage point, that is like a, a key defining line between a centrist, a neoliberal, whatever you want to call it, like the ROM element of the Democratic Party. And I would say uh, Lori Lightfoot is very much, to your point, very similar to Rahm Emanuel in outlook on this. Uh, and the um, progressive wing, uh, who, who are very concerned about taxes that will hit hard on people who could at least afford to pay them. And I remember... Um, Sue Sedlowski Garza on something like the, I don't know if you, the soda pop tax. I don't know if you remember that uh, fight. That was like in this, that wasn't even in the city council. It was at Cook County, but she came on my show and she was outspoken against it. And she's like, they're going to just send people to Indiana, which, you know, her ward borders, Indiana, the state of Indiana. And then she said, I remember she said, I will not going to vote for any uh, budget that has a property tax hike in it. Cause that, that was a promise I made to the people uh, in my ward. They, they feel they're paying too much in property taxes. We have to find other sources of revenue to fund city government. So to me, that's how I, one of the most basic defining points of a progressive. Uh, and if you do it that way, there's not a whole bunch of them in the city council. Your thoughts? Oh, I mean, regressive taxation is a, is a huge deal. You know, you get the red light cameras, you get the speed light cameras, uh, you get the pop tax, which uh, I can't, um, you know, as a as an inveterate, uh, I think I use that word right, diet coke drinker. Uh, you know, I I uh, I remember it very well. Uh, I've been cutting back though on uh, the girlfriend's orders, but the uh, um, 
You know, uh, Sue did vote for property tax increases in 2019 and 2020, you know, um, maybe 2021. Uh, but, but, you know, they weren't the same as what Rahm Emanuel pushed through with the other hikes. Um, but, you know, I, I think, I think it's fair to say the Sugar, I think it's more than fair to say the Sugars have lived up to our progressive values in general. And I don't think property tax increases, um, are regressive. I think that it's a decently progressive, uh, progressive thing. And obviously nobody likes them. Nobody likes, uh, um, property tax increases, everybody feels they're overtaxed. But, you know, the idea that the idea is that you should pay more if you have more, if you have something more expensive. And, you know, ideally that's how that works. And uh, you don't have the shenanigans that Joe Barrios was doing for such a long time. Well, but, you know, go ahead. we, we can debate that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I don't want to keep you here too long debating property taxes. I think you would feel a little differently about it if you bought a home in a neighborhood uh, that ha- before it gentrified and your salary was roughly the same after it gentrified and suddenly you're paying a property tax that's based on a, like a corporate lawyer's ability to pay it and you're a uh, <laughs> a writer for the Ted Broke Reader. You might have a different attitude about property taxes. I'm, uh, I'm uh, uh, you know, I'm in Little Village, uh, which is gentrifying somewhat and we're right next to Pilsen. I understand that issue. Uh, I'm just talking as a very broad matter you know, a property, you know, people in Lincoln Park with their prop, million dollar property should be paying more than someone in Hedgewich. And, uh, and, and, uh, that, that's all I'm trying to say there. All right. Fair enough. All right. Let's move on to the question, uh, that, uh, I've been thinking about a lot in the last week or so. Uh, and that has to do with, is it's this, it's a basic one. Why are so many older men and women leaving at this moment in time? Uh, I was saying before you came on the air, I can't recall, an instance, uh, a moment quite like this, where so many sitting aldermen, well-known names, uh, were stepping down and announcing that they were not going to run for re-election. Uh, yeah, I really cannot remember a time with so many. So what's your reigning theory as to why so many are stepping down? I think, uh, I think it's true what the mayor says that, uh, with COVID and the great resignation and all the things that have happened over the last few years, people all over the world are reassessing their lives. I also think there's a cop out from the mayor where that's very easy for her to say, because the other side of that is that some of them are running away from her. You know, they don't like working with her. They don't like what, how the city council has been uh, fairly or unfairly. That, that is a consideration for a lot of these people. Um, I think it probably is those two things. They don't like how how city government is being run these days, and they're in a position to peace out. And uh, and that's how it is. I mean, some of these people are facing um, electoral pressure, you know, like they, um, you know, uh, I, I'll take Sue Garza at her word, right, that she, she's been doing a lot of public service for a long time. She also was facing some pressure. She was going to have a, a nasty campaign against her, whether they could beat her or not. I don't know. Um, but they were going to give her headaches, right? They were going to go out there every day and talk about general iron and how she wants to pollute the neighborhood, which of course is something that she would say is BS and unfair and, and she would rebut. Uh, but who needs that at a certain point in your life after um, some of the things that have happened there. And, you know, think about Michelle Smith, who, who has also been around for a while and who, you know, does she want to raise another couple million dollars to, 
fight other people with a million with millions of dollars and and uh, get badmouthed every day to run end up in a runoff. So there's there's just a there's a lot of things going on, but I think that the big ones are people are reassessing their life. I think that's true, and people don't like the way government is running these days, and that part is also true. Mm, yeah, and that was definitely the case with Sue Sadlowski Garza. Uh, she felt betrayed by uh, Lori Lightfoot. And uh, she said that on my show, but she said that to you. And she made that clear, particularly in the General Irons fight, where she stuck her neck out. Uh, whether you like the deal or not, the city had dedicated itself to that deal. Two administrations, Gregory, had dedicated themselves to that deal. And also, then all of a sudden, when things got a little hot, uh, Lori Lightfoot pulled back. And Sue's neck was out there exposed. And so I just, I don't think she'll ever quite forgive Lori Lightfoot for what she considered a personal betrayal on that matter. Your thoughts? Well, uh, you know, the text messages, which is, I know, one of your favorite things. I remember Lori Lightfoot texting Sue Garza, I'm riding with you till the end, when Sue was complaining about the activists. And, you know, did she ride with her till the end? She did not. She rode with her uh, till the EPA made some fuss and there was a lot of protests and she decided that she didn't need the hassle of it, you know, and, and Sue thought that was a, a political decision. And, uh, and she ended up holding the bag and she, and looking, uh, um, looking bad in the whole situation, right. And being in a tough spot. So I, I understand uh, those feelings and, and, you know, that's the background there. Yeah. All right. Uh, so let's uh, talk about Ed Burke. So we're talking about this trend. Uh, aldermen are saying, forget it. I've had enough. I can't deal with this another moment. Other aldermen uh, are running, are stepping down at the moment to run for mayor. We'll see if they stick to that one, Gregory. Uh, and the other aldermen have to feel compelled to step down because they've been convicted. I'm thinking of Patrick Daly Thompson in the 11th Ward. Uh, Carrie Austin gave up her ward. Uh, she's been indicted in a federal bri- uh, corruption case. Ed Burke defies it all. The I just read a story. I think I think we may have been Shia Capos. I can't remember where. Maybe it was sometimes where he. The word is that he's going to run for re-election. Ed Burke's been around even longer than I have, Greg. I don't know if that was possible, but it is true. Is that possible? Yeah, <laughs> it's. He's a, he came on the scene in 1969, and I was just a little lad uh, at Evanston High School, following the Bulls uh, and the Bears and the Cubs and the White Sox. So. Um, what's with Ed Burke? So um, I'm very curious to see what Ed Burke does because he's defiant, he's bullish, he's got money, so he can defend himself, even though a bunch of his money's tied up on very expensive criminal defense lawyers. Uh, but um, his ward is not his ward anymore. You know, it's completely remade. He was able to win last time because there was a, a segment of um, – uh, gerrymandered old Polish people who have voted for him for decades and who will vote for him until he's not on the ballot. So, uh, you know, is he going to run again? I don't know. I saw what Shia wrote. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised either way, but I always like, um, Ed Burke has an old saying, right? It's, it's one of my, it, it always uh, pops me. It always gives me a kick. He likes to talk about how there's three ways for aldermen to leave the city council. There's the jury box, the ballot box and the pine box. Yeah. And I always thought that he would go out in the, 
uh, pine box or the jury box. Uh, he might go out through the ballot box. Uh, but, you know, maybe uh, I was wondering whether he would actually just say, I'm not going out in any box. I'm going to go hang out, you know, and just, just do my own thing. Uh, but but we'll see. If he runs again, he's in, he's in very deep trouble. Yeah, he's in deep trouble. And uh, uh, he'll be challenged uh, by the Jesus Garcia faction of the Democratic Party in the neck of the wood. And Jesus Garcia, uh, the congressman, of course, looks pretty powerful. He had quite a run, his, and his uh, endorsements carry significant weight, uh, Greg. So, I yeah, I, I'm with you. I think it's, uh, he's probably going to lose if he runs again. All right, your thoughts on whether this is healthy for the city of Chicago, that so many aldermen are stepping down. You could argue that this is a form of term limits. Uh, people have been advocating for term limits for a while, so you're kind of getting it, Chicago. Uh, do you think it's a healthy sign for the city that we're going to have influx of uh, rookie aldermen? You know, I'll go out on a limb and say, yeah, I think so. I think that um, change is good. You don't want so much change that there's turmoil. You don't want so much change for the sake of change. You know, I, I, I'll also go out on a limb and say that if there's 50 aldermen, all 50 of them are not doing a good job. You know, uh, I know that's a radical idea, but some of them need to go. And I think, I think that's fair. I think, and you know, some of them are acknowledging that implicitly by saying it's time for someone new. Um, some of them are, uh, are manifesting that themselves by getting themselves indicted, you know, and so, or getting themselves into some other types of trouble. Uh, in general, you know, we have ideas sometimes where, um, experience is good and experience is good and it is valuable, but you can have too much of it. And more importantly, you can, you can watch, uh, you can lose perspective and that's really the more important thing. So like, I like to, I I get a kick out of it when people say that they want term limits for opinion writers at the New York times and uh, you know, a columnist, and, and you know a little bit about this. It, it's a tough job to be a columnist. And if you don't grow, if what Ben Jarofsky wrote in 1984 was verbatim, what you write every <laughs> single time, yeah. that's not good. Right. And, yeah. uh, and you, you know, you, you're, you're Ben Jarofsky, you have, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're not going to wake up and turn into John Cass. At least I hope not. Yeah. But, <laughs> But you, you know, you have to be smart enough as you write to understand that things change and understand that different players come in and understand all of these dynamics. And that's also true for elected officials. And when you have, um, you know, when you have people sticking around just to stick around and that does happen, that's not good either, yeah. you know? Well, you know, it's, it's a, it, that is a great uh, aside that, uh, that you, the issue did you just raise. And I want to, it's a tangent of a bit. But uh, the dynamic of journalists changing and uh, my basic general worldview uh, has been pretty much unchanged, uh, Gregory, since 1972 when I was as very young, supported George McGovern so enthusiastically. And then <laughs> I had, metaphorically speaking, had my brains bashed in with one of the greatest landslides in the world. And that kind of that formed my worldview. Uh, I'm not alone in that. Like it formed Bill Clinton's worldview and he went one way and I went another way, obviously. Um, but 
I do believe that journalists have to, in my humble opinion, uh, sort of change, just sort of uh, play by do set of rules, maybe. And I'm going to, I'll ask you about this because, you know, like I've noticed this, the, your generation of journalists, uh, and that is uh, people who are in their late twenties or thirties, Miles Conflassen is about to join us. Talk national politics is in this category as well. Um, but I'm talking about in the mainstream papers like the Sun Times and the Tribune, definitely the Tribune are just speaking out more in their articles, news articles in a way that the journalists that were writing uh, covering city hall in the eighties did not. And I think this is um, also the case with the New York times and the Washington post and their coverage of Trump. When a politician says something like this is on my mind, cause I literally wrote this uh, Mark Kern, who is running for state Supreme court in Lake County. And he, you know, he ran for Senate uh, against Durbin outspoken anti-abortion rights candidate. And uh, when Dave McKinney of BEZ interviewed him, he says, I'm not anti-abortion. That is just such a blatant <laughs> lie. You know what I'm saying? So I feel your generation of journalists would call him out on it, would say immediately point out that everything he said before this moment contradicts what he just said. So I do believe there's a shift uh, in, in journalism. If you don't keep up with it, you really are behind the times. Your thoughts. Well, I think that, uh, I think that's right. You know, you can't let people tell you that shit is chocolate, you know, because otherwise you're eating shit and that's not any place that anybody wants to be at. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that on the podcast, but you are, you are. It's a podcast. I'll, I'll say it anyway. Uh, but the the um, the um, the broader point, though, is is uh, for me, you know, journalists, um, journalists especially, but I think everyone in general. Um, once you think you know everything, that's when you get yourself into trouble. And if you're not understanding and following and paying attention and not, you know, not um, you know, it's like it's like imagine if um, as you were reporting if you allowed yourself to think that Danny Solis of 1989 is the same Danny Solis of 2021, you know, he's not right. He was, he was something one day, he's something else another day. And you have to be smart enough to understand that. Now that's a very extreme example, but the, uh, but you, you just need to uh, never think, you know, everything. And if, if you do, but you also uh, need to know enough to know that, uh, to call people out when, when there's uh, some nonsense going on. Well, I got to tell you this right now. You mentioned Danny. I knew Danny Solis in 1989. I knew Danny Solis in about 1985. And it, it, the heart of it, he is the same guy then as he is now. He was an operator then, and he's an operator now. Okay. And, and so he was always one step ahead of everybody else. And, you know, you know how you, you form relations with politicians. And you notice if you ever covered Danny, Danny is a great one for going off the record and telling you, well, we, this is what I got going. This is what I'm going to do. It was always like a scheme. And I was trying to figure out what the scheme was. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> He's always one step ahead of me. Uh, and then, of course, he got one step ahead of himself. Uh, so I would argue there's a certain uh, basic human qualities that make up Danny Solis that are unchanged through time. Uh, but you understand my point about what, what, what he's operating on or for and all of those things change. And, you know, you have to recognize that and not 
not be fuzzy about, uh, you know, I liked them back in the 80s when we were eating tacos at Harrison Park or something. <laughs> yeah, I kind of like, well, you know, this is a whole other, uh, we shouldn't go down this path, but I, I give Danny Solis credit. No one, no one. I think I said this the last time we're in the show has done as much to quote unquote reform Chicago. And I'd have that in quotes uh, in the last uh, 20 years as Danny Solis, he put that wire on and brought down two extremely powerful people, uh, definitely at Burke. And it looks like he may have had a hand in uh, Michael Madigan's political demise. So I would argue that Danny Solis for better or for worse is the greatest agent for reform. This city has ever seen at least in this century that's my case you uh before i let you go do you agree with me on that one or disagree uh, i will today's the day of going out on a limb and i would agree with that with the caveat that you know you never know how things are going to turn out but he, but he brought down these two people he helped bring down the two most powerful people in illinois politics um aside from the mayor whoever the mayor is so yeah it's an extraordinary story yeah all right, before I let you go, I have to, you mentioned already that how much I enjoy uh, you uh, digging out the the, the secret uh, texts of Mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, through your FOIA requests. Uh, you're very um, diligent on this, and uh, you've earned the enmity of uh, Lori Lightfoot. I would say you may be her least favorite reporter in the city of Chicago, um, which is quite an honor. And um, so anything new that I've missed, any great uh, uh, texts that you've uncovered uh, in the last month or so since the last time you were on the show? What well, sort of brings us full circle where to Sue Garza, where uh, there's, I was just blown away by, um, I call it a remarkable curiosity. She's the only person I can think of who is, dissed Lori Lightfoot and not gotten dissed back. In fact, the mayor was, you know, after Sue Garza dissed on her, she she came out and praised her. She still praises her. Uh, and afterwards, she texted Sue and said, Sue, I still love you. That hasn't changed. Which, um, you know, I, I I don't fully understand, you know. Maybe there's a cynical side that, that she thinks that Sue can help her with, like, CTU and labor. Maybe there's a Maybe there's some cynical angle I have, but, you know, I think it's fascinating that that spot Lori Lightfoot has for Sue Garza and how um, how it exists, and there's nothing like it. And that, that text message when I saw it was like a trip. It's just like, goodness gracious, you know. She just said that you piss everybody off and that you're, uh, you know, she, she can't support you for re-election, and your response is, I still love you. Yeah, we should all wish for a love like that in our lives. <laughs> if only she showed that kind of love for you. Uh, I, I want to point out uh, she blamed me. She, this is my, one of my favorite parts of that whole thing because it was a show that Sue uh, went on a, a riff uh, and criticized uh, Lori Lightfoot, and then Greg Gregory wrote about it, brought it to the attention of the wider world. Uh, and that compelled Lori Lightfoot to respond. And she responded by saying <laughs> the interviewer like forced Sue Sadlowski Garza to say that. So I was the, like the bad guy in the thing and not Sue Sadlowski Garza. So happy yeah, if I said anything controversial on this, it's because you made me, how about that? <laughs> okay. Yeah. You could say anything you want right now. You're closing line, say something really controversial and then you can blame it on me. Go. I think that uh, I think you have a great next guest coming your way okay. in Miles. 
and uh, I, I will peacefully transfer power. Very good. All right. Unlike Donald Trump, he's peacefully transferring power. The great Gregory Pratt from the Chicago Tribune. Thanks a lot, Gregory. Appreciate it as always. All right. All right, let's bring on Miles Conflassen uh, from In These Times. And uh, Miles, yeah, we, why don't you just piggyback on some of the things uh, that Gregory was talking about? We were talking about Sue Selesky Garza and her legacy, 10th Board Alderman, uh, progressive champion uh, for many years, close ally of Karen Lewis and the Chicago Teachers Union. I really want to get into student loan debt talk with you and your thoughts on that. But before we do that, uh, just your general thoughts of this. Uh, Sue Sadlowski Garza stepping down and what that means uh, for progressive or lefty uh, local politics. Go ahead. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me, Ben. Uh, hopefully uh, there's nothing controversial about the statement that I'm a great next guest. Uh, I hope that's, uh, you know, fully true and honest uh, portrayal and uh, Greg is great. So glad to uh, share some time with him. Yeah, I think there's a sea change happening in city council right now. And, um, you know, uh, Sue Sadlowski Garza's retirement reflects that. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with the occupant of the fifth floor of city hall and kind of their relationship with the city council. And the fact that, you know, I think it's slightly reflective of broader trends that are happening, right? I mean, the great resignation is what is widely called this uh, time in the midst of or uh, post-pandemic when people are reassessing their um, roles in the labor workforce and, you know, where they want to spend their time. And I think we should take uh, Sue at her word that she wants to, you know, focus on herself and her family right now. Um, and so I don't, you know, begrudge anybody for leaving. I know it's not the easiest job from, you know, being slightly, you know, close to some folks on the, uh, on the council. I know with a struggle, it can be, um, especially because, you know, we've seen over the past few years, the city council really transform from what was largely a rubber stamp operation, certainly under the, under daily and even under ROM to more of a legislative body. And that's a challenge, you know, cause it's been so uh, atrophied through decades of existing as largely kind of a, you know, symbolic operation, not to take away from the work of a lot of people that have served. But I mean, you know, if you look at the way that politics is done, it's largely like it's from on high, you know, and people just kind of go along with whatever happens and whoever is kind of the decision maker, certainly when that comes to, you know, from my analysis, a lot of the times when it's the developer class, the donor class, certainly finance capital in the city, they're the ones that often get to make decisions. And so now that we're seeing more policy come out of city council, it's caused a lot more challenges and, um, I think this is a part of Sue's legacy is certainly, you know, she helped to usher in this era of the CTU being a real player in Chicago politics um, and was a pioneer in terms of bringing their approach and CORE's approach, particularly, you know, the caucus of rank and file educators, focusing on a more broad social justice oriented view, both of union politics as well as electoral politics. Um, and you can see the impact of that in the new generation and class of 
progressives and now socialists that are uh, serving on the council. The fact that there is a democratic socialist council now, uh, caucus on, on, on the council. I actually, over the weekend, was um, at uh, this socialism conference that happened here uh, in McCormick Place, and I hosted a panel with Carlos Ramirez Rosa, a big uh friend of the show, I know, as well as uh, Anthony Joel Quezada, who recently won his primary for the 8th District on the Cook County Board. And both of them talked about how this has, you know, been a, a new era for the uh, for city politics. And there's a lot of young people that are going to be, I think, trying to fill the vacuum that's been left by all, what is it, 12, 15 aldermen, something like that, that have now been announced that they're not going to um, serve again. So, you know, the people that are going to fill that are younger people that have been politicized during a very different time um, in uh, in American politics. And I think bring a very different type of a- analysis and, and energy. And so I think, you know, Sue having kind of laid the pathway, obviously kind of circuitous routes, you know, you talk about her relationship with Mayor Lightfoot and how that's kind of changed. Um, and certainly that relationship is different from hers with Rahm Emanuel. Uh, she still kind of, I think, was a served to help a lot of younger people get their footing um, on the council and showed what it could be like to be, you know, a representative of um, left wing unionism on a political body like the Chicago City Council. So I think that's kind of what what, what we can see going forward from her retirement. Yeah, and I, I have to say this. Uh, because of the general irons issue, uh, there was a sort of turning on uh, Sue Sadlowski Garza and many lefties, uh, younger lefties that I know that are just coming of age, politically speaking, just starting to pay attention to things, uh, would say so much disparaging things to me about her. And I always push back and I go, you have no idea what that Sadlowski, you know, I'm the old guy as always, you know, you don't know what that Sadlowski name means and what the legacy is. And I remember when she showed up uh, as an elected official, uh, as an alderman, older woman, uh, Miles, in 2015 during the Ram year, she would wear red. Uh, the color of the Chicago Teachers Union uh, on the floor, and they would make fun of her. Uh, some of the other aldermen would make fun of her. Poco Joe Moreno, I'm leading the charge. You know, I can't. I always say it is a high school. Sometimes it's a it's a high school cafeteria. That's what you're dealing with the city council, uh, and so she very much represented uh, like a, a progressive uh, force and wing. So uh, yeah, things change, as uh, Gregory was saying. Uh, and I have no idea what direction the city council will uh, go in. Uh, but uh, it is a challenge uh, going forward to con- continue with those progressive ideas. Uh, there's sort of a backlash going on. Before I have to pick up on something you said, though. And I was thinking this when Gregory was talking. And I didn't get a chance to say it. And you like stole my thought. You read my mind. Um, the, uh, the great resignation. You're absolutely correct. Like so many people and so many walks of life that I talked to just having casual conversations like a nurse or a cop or a firefighter or a teacher. I can't take this job. Another minute of this job. When I get my pension, I'm leaving or, you know, uh, I have enough money saved up. I can leave. I'm just, I, I need a break. And I'm not certain exactly what is sparking this at this moment. Uh, maybe if it's COVID related, uh, the pressures of just having retreated to our caves for two years or whatever it was during the COVID shutdown. Do you have any general thoughts on this subject? I don't think we've ever talked about this. Uh, What's behind the great resignation? Yeah. Well, if you look at, 
employment figures, a lot of what's happening is, I mean, people call it a resignation as if people are dropping out of the workforce. And in fact, what we're seeing is kind of the opposite. Certainly in this past month's uh, economic figures, it's been people re-entering the workforce. But uh, but what we have also seen is people changing their jobs, you know, and, and, and moving to better paying, certainly better uh, jobs where people are are treated better. And it's kind of the opposite of what happened. And we'll probably get into this talking about student loan stuff. But, you know, back in um, after the Great Recession, which is when I really entered workforce back in 2008, um, there was a dearth of, of job opportunities. And it was really race to the bottom stuff in terms of how employers approached that. You know, they tried to just squeeze workers as much as possible and prey on the fact that people were desperate. And right now, that desperation, I think, is managed manifesting in a different way in terms of uh, people fighting back, both through unionizing their workplaces and just broadly putting pressure on bosses. And that's why you see some of the biggest wage gains going to uh, retail and fast food workers right now. It's both because of the actual unionization process, but also just the pressure that's built up by folks seeing that, you know, REI is, you know, unionizing and, you know, Amazon is starting to pay more money to, to workers. Well, that's going to impact the, um, the market as a whole and other, uh, employers are going to have to try to keep up with that. So I think part of what we're seeing, it's not so much just people resigning. It's more so moving into different, uh, types of positions that better reflect their values and, you know, what they want to see in their future. And that has to do with, uh, being a you know uh, a labor market that is more oriented towards bargaining power for workers. Now we're definitely seeing a backlash to that. Certainly the uh, actions of the Federal Reserve and trying to you know raise interest rates and weaken um, the power of the labor force uh, has has occurred as a result. I think of that, um, which I think is a misguided view of the causes of inflation, you know, we energy prices and supply chain issues are much more of an impact than some fast food worker making, you know, $12 an hour instead of $8 an hour or something. Um, but yeah, I think that that's, uh, we're going to continue to see more people reassess their life choices and where, and their station in life and not be as held back by the dictates of their employers um, and certainly when it comes to things like serving in, you know, legislative body or just in, uh, you know, civil government or civil service, that's hopefully going to change the way that, uh, those bodies operate so mm-hmm. that there is more, uh, room for the people because it's, you know, as, as much of it is like a calling and you're representing your constituents, it's your life, you know, that's your job and it's where you spend your, um, your, your days and often your nights. And so you want to have that be a positive, um, environment. And I think, you know, you see that in the way that the, you know, staffs of legislators are unionizing themselves and, um, trying to like change the actual conditions on the job, um, across the board. I just published an article today by, um, somebody who, uh, is a nonprofit worker at the, um, at a, organization that works on uh, Iranian issues. And she would talked about how, you know, it was very difficult to find um, a parent union to take her on because of how many nonprofit workers are flooding these larger unions um, to asking them to get representation because nonprofit workers are, are fed up. You know, that's like 12, 15 million workers, something like that. 
I think it's around 10% of the private workforce works in nonprofit. And we just haven't seen that field be unionized. And now people are and because, you know, this kind of snowball effect from labor organizing that's happening across more like professional industries, if you want to call them that things like, you know, people, the lawyers and uh, architects and even, um, you know, office workers more broadly, certainly academic workers. So, yeah, I think that that's um, all part of the same ongoing process. And it has to do with class struggle with, you know, with, with workers trying to, um, you know, reel some power back to their lives and bring some democracy in terms of their, um, in their workplaces in the face of employers that are frequently more out of touch with that perspective. Yeah. There will be a backlash. There's no doubt in my mind. We see it already. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a very, uh, uh, curious, uh, process here that's going on with the unionization efforts in this country. We've had many uh, people come on the show, talk about their efforts to unionize the, like a Starbucks coffee shop or art Institute workers or university employees, not-for-profit sector that miles uh, was just alluding to congressional aides. Just think about this miles congressional aides, democratic congressional aides are represented by the teamsters. I believe, I think it's the teamsters union, which is pretty wild in itself. Uh, when you think of the history of the Teamsters Union. Uh, and in the past, if you were a congressional aide, you just kind of viewed this as a stepping stone to something else. Maybe you were going to go to law school afterwards. Maybe you were going to run for office afterwards. Maybe you were going to become a consultant and set up your own shop. Uh, so the notion that you would need a union to protect yourself, to protect uh, the amount of money you to bargain uh, collectively for the money you would have just seemed so remote. Something, some dynamic has changed, Miles, in the minds of young people who are now congressional aides that they feel they need union protection. It's a different world. Uh, I don't know if the left can survive the backlash uh, that will come when, for instance, you're going to hear Republican politicians blame uh, unions and uh, pay hikes for inflation. You know what I'm saying? I could see that argument coming down the road. I can hear it. Uh, and uh, so your thoughts on the, how this is going to play out politically uh, in the in the coming years? Well, that's I mean, that's already happening. They're, they're making that argument now that the reason we're, you know, the gas prices are high, the grocery prices are high is because, some um, you know, low wage worker just got a slight pay bump. I mean, that's kind of there. You just Ted Cruz even, you know, talking about student debt stuff he was we went on uh tv and was saying you know there's these lazy baristas that are going to be given a handout now through biden's plan because um they wasted seven years getting a useless degree it's like real contempt for um for working people and it really obfuscates the fact of the matter which is that the vast majority of people that are um, you know, right now we're getting some benefit in these types of jobs that I talked about, like retail and fast food, um, they're poor and working class and largely disproportionately, um, black and from communities of color. And those are the very people that need a pay bump, you know, that need a little uh, leg up in our um, economy, certainly. And the fact that there's just, you know, this vial being uh, um, 
uh, approach from the right and from the Republicans towards their plight, while, you know, the GOP often also positions itself as a so-called like workers party or working class party, this whole um, fake posturing that's coming from, you know, your Tom Cotton's and people like that. It's just, it's hypocrisy at its finest and, and, and it's wrong too. I mean, that's the thing is that the reason for, as I, as I, you know, kind of alluded to earlier, the reasons for inflation, if you look at any reasonable economist analysis, it has to do with um, energy prices, which is largely impacted by a couple things. One is the relationship with Saudi Arabia and, you know, the fact that Biden just went and tried to like kiss the ring of MBS. And right after that, he said he's actually lowering oil production because of this really, um, you know, tense relationship right now between the U.S. and uh, the Saudis, which are a huge supplier of our oil reserves, as well as Russia, where we have, you know, huge sanctions on the country. And that's really impacting both energy prices as well as grain and food prices. And that's and that, along with the long tail of the pandemic and the war in Ukraine, has led to all these uh uh, issues in supply chains. And, you know, a lot of that is more like most likely going to be more short term. Um, but that's part of the reason we're seeing these costs increase. But talking about that is a lot more complicated than just saying, Hey, you know, these workers making more money are the cause for you having to pay more money for milk or something. It just doesn't work like that. And it's the same divide and conquer strategy. We always see, um, whenever, uh, working people see any kind of benefits to their lives. The same reason they were going after the checks. I mean, they say that, you know, the uh, getting stimulus checks is part of the reason for um, there being this inflation. There's no, you know, that, that just doesn't uh, stand up to the smell test at all because after that happened, people did have some more purchasing power. That's true. But it wasn't when we saw, we didn't see these huge inflation spikes right after that. It wasn't a kind of a causal relationship. Um, and if anything, it was, you know, massively politically popular. And we saw, uh, for the first time in many, many years, we actually saw the poverty rate go down after the, you know, getting the expanded child tax credit, which is now dried up as well as stimulus checks and, you know, eviction moratorium, some of these other really more, um, pro working class policies, even that were passed at the tail end of the Trump administration, you know, through the cares act, even before, um, Biden came into office. And that was, a great thing. You know, we were able to like reduce poverty in this country and the response from uh, the Republican party and even some centrist Democrats was like, let's never do that again. And you know, the, these poor people getting more money and being able to like live a more dignified life and not have to scrounge so that they can feed their kids um, meals every night. Like that's the, that's the problem in America right now that, uh, that, that we need to, deal with. And I think that's reflected in the actions of the Fed. As I said, you know, the doing, you know, that they just have one blunt tool, which is raising interest rates, which means your mortgage is going to cost more, which means, you know, it's, it's more, more pain, you know, for you in the checkout line or whatever, when you're paying your bills, um, as a way to, you know, re reduce demand so that we can kind of, you know, work out, but that's like inducing a recession. We've talked about this before. It's kind of the Volcker play, Paul Volcker playbook. And we saw what happened. You know, you might be able to, um, reduce the inflation rate slightly, but the result of it is going to be people 
um, living more miserable lives. And I don't think that's an actual public policy goal that we should be aiming towards. Let's get into student debt because it ties in directly, uh, thematically anyway, with uh, sort of the general uh, uh, blowback that you've been describing in the Republican Party. Uh, For a long time, you would come on the show, Micah would come on the show, other lefties would come on the show. Uh, this is a lefty show uh, and champion Bernie Sanders uh, proposal to make uh, public education free uh, for college, just like going to grammar school and high school is free. Uh, and, uh, and then we would have the debate on that. And then, so then the issue got uh, boiled into just like dismissing the um, canceling the student debt, the billions of dollars that people owe have accumulated in debt over the years. Uh, there was frustration from the left with Joe Biden because he didn't move fast on this one, to put it mildly. And then out of nowhere, it caught me by surprise. Uh, he proposed to eliminate up to what is it, uh, 20,000 uh, for people below a certain uh, salary range and 10,000 for everybody else. Those There were those on the left who said it's not enough, but we'll take it. Uh, and then there was this immediate uh, blowback uh, from the right that somehow this is unfair. Uh, your general reaction, Miles, to what Biden did and uh, the reaction. Sure. The specifics are, I mean, it's in, the entire program is means tested. So it's not uh, for everyone necessarily. The It starts at $125,000 for individuals and two hundred and fifty for uh, couples or families. And it's so if you, you know, are under those income thresholds, you would receive uh, $10,000 in student debt relief um, as soon as this policy is able to go into effect. And if you received a Pell Grant, um, you know, which are people who qualify for Pell Grants, obviously they've already gone through the means testing um, to declare them to be, you know, uh, more having issues with their income that mean that they qualify and are approved for um, getting a Pell Grant. So those are actual low-income individuals. They'd get $20,000 in debt relief under this plan. Another part of it that hasn't gotten as much attention, but I think is a major uh, development, is that there was also a limit that uh, Biden proposed of how much you can be forced to pay back on a monthly basis, which has gone from 10%, which it was under Obama, to 5%. Um, so that could actually long-term have more of an impact. I mean, some of the critics of this plan say, you know, this is just a one-time cancellation. Uh, that's not going to have any impact down the road in the future. Um, I kind of agree with some of that. And I do think that we should, you know, I think we should have canceled all the debt. Um, and I think that going forward, like you mentioned, having a policy around dealing with the structural issues around tuition um, and the exorbitant cost of higher education in America is really necessary. And that would mean making their uh, making college free, uh, at least uh, public colleges, community colleges, trade schools, things like that, uh, to help drive down costs overall. But this 5% um uh, limit, I think will go a long way long-term in terms of allowing people to have some more financial freedom. So they're not like shoveling their entire paycheck into, um, to paying off student loans. So that's some kind of like, you know, broad overview of what the state of policy is. I'll just give kind of my own personal perspective. Cause you know, I am a student loan 
hold a uh, debt holder, uh, borrower. I graduated, as I said, in 2008, uh, from undergrad. And, you know, when I took out the loans to go to school, I was a teenager, you know, I didn't, I, right. and everyone had told me that that was what I needed to do, you know, and I think my entire generation had that a similar experience where college is just assumed to be a necessary um, stepping stone to greater employment and some of the, you know, most meaningful parts of adulthood or a dignified life, things like, you know, accessing a car and a home and being able to provide for families. So, you know, that was the bargain, right. That was on the table. Like, you know, you're going to take out loans and then you'll come out of college and be able to, you know, get employed and get enough money you can pay off the debt and, and do these other things. Well, in 2008, when I graduated, there was no jobs, you know, that was uh, one of the most bleak times in uh, our labor market. And so it was very difficult. And, you know, you got tens of thousands of dollars in debt. It's hard to think through paying that off. And I mean, I don't come from a wealthy family, so we couldn't, you know, I couldn't rely on um, support for that. So I had to defer my loans for a long payment on my loans for a long time while I just worked at, you know, doing nonprofit work and fundraising. That's some of the only, you know, employment opportunities that were out there. And in the meantime, the interest on my loans then went through the roof. Um, and this is, you know, now this is 2022. I still have, you know, I'm almost completely paid off my loans. Uh, but that's, it took, you know, from 2008 to 2022 to even get close to being, uh, paid off and many months, uh, for, you know, large stretches of this time I've paid more in, uh, monthly in my student loan repayments than even my rent, you know? Um, and, so it's a massive burden in terms of how much, and as a result of that, I mean, partially it's my life choices of deciding to be a lefty journalist, you know, work in this uh, nonprofit media sector, but I don't have any savings, you know, I haven't been able to save any, any, any money over that time, even though I'm, you know, an editor at a publication, seemingly that's like, you know, I've gone through the process of getting a, a degree basically in politics and then getting a job doing that, you know, in a fairly respectable field of journalism and still, you know, because of uh, low pay as well as the burden of student loan debt, you know, that's, I don't have a car. I don't have, certainly don't have a mortgage, you know, I just, I don't have a family. So it's like, I already, even without being able to reach, you know, milestones like that still have not been able to uh, accumulate much in the way of, um, of wealth or savings. And so that's kind of what this policy is about, is about reckoning with the fact that this bargain has not been fulfilled, you know, for millions of people. This, you know, it's estimated to impact over 40 million people in terms of who's going to get some debt canceled as a result of this plan. But that's a huge underestimate uh, because there's so many people that know other people that are dealing with loan debt that are helping them pay them off, you know, whether it's, you know, parents or yeah. spouses or significant others, they're all going to uh, benefit from this as well. And I think that that is ultimately what helped to convince Joe Biden, somebody who uh, was involved in the, you know, the bankruptcy act, passing the bankruptcy act in 2005, that basically made student debt its own type of debt. That means you can't, you know, get out of it. Even if you declare bankruptcy, I have friends that are having their wages garnished, you know, 10 years later from not even having graduated. They didn't even get a degree, right. You know, cause about 40% of people with these massive amounts of student loan debt didn't even 
finish college. They just got the debt and then they're left dealing with it. And because it's, uh, you're unable to uh, get out of it, you will have your wages garnished uh, for your entire life potentially. And even after you die, it'll go on to your, your dependents. So, you know, this is a real issue that I think the result is going to be a sense of freedom. And I think it has, will also allow for people to not feel the same level of shame, you know, and, and guilt about being um, massively indebted. And I think that's going to have a huge impact going forward because this is not, you know, didn't come out of nowhere. This is the result of years of dedicated organizing. There's a group that um, I saw this weekend at that uh, socialism conference called the debt collective that has been at the forefront of making these demands. And, you know, you mentioned, uh, Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016, Bernie wasn't even running on student debt cancellation. That was an idea that was really injected into uh, the mainstream political dialogue by organizers that, uh, that came together to say, we need to, you know, have a debt jubilee. We need to have cancellation so that people can actually do something with their lives and not be straddled with this debt. You know, one of the things that the debt collective says is, you know, there's an old saying that, you know, if you owe, if you, if you have, uh, if you owe a bank a thousand dollars, the bank has all the power, but if you owe the bank $10 million, you have all the power, right? Because if you, if you, if you come together, you have way more of an impact. And that's the entire idea of the debt collective is that all the, all of these debtors, together can actually have more influence. And in this case, the federal government has, you know, was, is the one holding uh, these funds. So they were able to just with a, um, you know, flick of a pen, then cancel it. Obviously there will be court challenges and, and, and so forth. But in the meantime, it is an example of how social movements can really have a direct impact once you get, you know, a more uh, friendly individual into the white house yeah by the way no yeah the way i always heard that line was uh, i've heard it for years is uh if you owe a thousand if you owe a thousand dollars to the bank you're in trouble if you owe 10 million dollars to the bank the bank's in trouble uh and donnie trump has showed how that game plays out uh so i don't get me started on the utter hypocrisy of the republican party uh which which is uh, led by Donald Trump, who's been bankrupt, I think, five times. I always forget if it's five or six. Uh, and uh, Alex Jones is now going in bankruptcy, so, you know, to protect uh, his millions. So it's just... Well, utter- Trump, it, Trump is also, like, referred to himself as the king of debt, right? In, yeah. you know, a positive way, because he's proud of it. Like, he's like, that's, you know, that's how the game is played, and I'm playing it. At the, yeah. But at the same time, he's re- and the same Republicans that got all these, you know, PPP loans... Uh, relieved from the government are the same ones castigating, you know, young kids for seeking some loan relief. Listen, dear friend, Sam Holloway always says just, he always urges me, stop calling Republicans hypocrites. Everybody knows they're hypocrites. You're not going to gain anything by doing it. Uh, The reason I do it miles so often is because when I see the hypocritical arguments that the Republicans raise seeping into the general discourse, and I've seen it like on many levels, just the whole discussion of cancel culture and the, the issue of liberty and free speech uh, has been so uh, what arranged by choreographed by Republicans to mean one thing. Definitely, even though they are canceling speech over, I have to object because now you're now you're impacting. It's not just some guy blustering, you know, it's you're impacting public policies. So Ted Cruz um 
diminishing in uh, uh, a, a uh, Starbucks employee with a big uh, college debt uh, is one thing. But when they use it to justify policies, they give tax breaks to wealthy people uh, and then put more of the burden on government, uh, funding government to poor people, you got to speak out. So you get what I'm saying? It's just the hypocrisy of the Republican Party is one of the main problems, in my humble opinion, with uh, government today. And uh, it's very difficult uh, to just ignore it. All right. Uh, I I must say this uh, about student debt, that it takes a while for an idea to really uh, get to the uh, mainstream. And you're absolutely correct when you point out uh, that Bernie, that was not a champion theme for Bernie in 2016. It was in 2020. Uh, and I remember the 2019 the presidential debate, Democratic debates, where so many of the candidates mocked and maligned the notion of uh, Pete Buttigieg, as I recall, was leading the charge in that one with the most preposterous argument I'd ever heard. Well, it's unfair to people who go to trade school. Well, then just eradicate debt for people at trade school. There, boom, solve that one. Uh, so the fact that Joe Biden, who's very much a centrist, Miles is championing this at this point. Uh, I take as a very hopeful sign, and I truly hope that he does not pay a price for it in this coming election, or the Democrats don't pay a price for it, because then you'll watch more retreat. You get what I'm saying? You know how that game is played. Further retreat from progressive ideas uh, if they lose. So I'm I'm watching this one closely. I assume you are as well, correct? Yeah, I, I, I am, and I don't see much evidence for the fact that there will be, you know, voter backlash to this. I don't think that's going to be, there's no evidence that this is what top concern. I mean, they might try to polarize on this. Right. And, you know, it's certainly what Ted Cruz is trying to do, you know, make you as a Republican voter or even an independent who maybe doesn't have college debt mad at the and resentful of the Starbucks baristas getting some of their um, their debt relieved, but I don't think that's there's no sign that's a, an issue that is a top concern for voters. I think the people that benefit from it will certainly think about that when they go into the voting booth. But uh, the top issues are the economy, i.e., like inflation and and, and prices and abortion. Uh, largely, as well as, you know, in some polls, there's questions about uh, protecting democracy as well. So, yeah, I, I, I don't really see that as much. And I think that, you know, this is what you just said is important because this is a president who has spent his life in politics as like an example of a neoliberal politician of somebody who has been about, you know, market fundamentalism, allowing the private markets. He's from Delaware. You know, he's been called the Senator of the credit card industry because of how much, you know, how many giveaways that uh, he's, he had overseen in his time in the Senate to, um, to the business. And he, you know, by all his reporting was really resistant to this idea of debt cancellation early on in uh, his administration. Well, he's kind of come fully around on it to the point where he's actually um, speaking from a moral position about how important this is. And the White House's, you know, official Twitter account is not only pointing out GOP hypocrisy about the people that got the PPP loans, you know, relieved that are now mad about student debt relief, but also the stories of what this is going to mean for individual people, the same way I just told kind of my story about dealing with student debt stuff. It's not for a Crimea River 
thing is to be like, this is the reality, you know, of um, so many millions of Americans that are going to see a benefit as a result of this. And in that way, it's a break from these kind of neoliberal austerity politics that have really dominated for decades. I mean, a lot of this started, you probably know about, you know, the long history of Ronald Reagan and California and the the school system there. And there was a time when, you know, public universities were funded by the states and were able to have low tuition and great education. And, you know, during Reagan's time in office in California, he really set off this um, decades-long peeling away of government support for these types of institutions that has led to this situation we have now where there's, you know, you people point out administrative bloat at schools, but really the issue is this massive uh, tuition costs that make college pretty inaccessible to anybody that's either willing to take on massive amounts of debt or already comes from some type of wealth in their background. And what Biden's doing here is showing that there can be, you know, another approach, which is just saying, you know, we're not going to do the market fundamentalist thing. We're just going to wipe, wipe it out. Um, and for me, you know, people will point out, well, what about the same way you said, you know, trade schools or something and people will say, well, what about like medical debt or credit card debt? You know, these other things that are facing, uh, other Americans, I think this opens the door to that. I mean, Biden could certainly, when it comes to, you know, uh, medical debt as it pertains to veterans where the government oversees it, he could wipe out that debt as well. You know, I think that there's a lot of more, op- this opens the door to more opportunities and we shouldn't see this as like a, um, either or situation where, you know, some there's winners or losers. It's more of a reorientation of our politics to say that we can actually give relief to, uh, to working people who really need it right now. All right. Well put, uh, before I let you go, I want to give a shout out to Benny to, uh, in these times articles that you've either written or edited other than the one you already mentioned. Yeah, for sure. We've been doing a lot of uh, reporting on um, this upsurge in labor organizing. Some of that I talked to I talked about earlier. Uh, you know, we just celebrated Labor Day yesterday, and one of the things that was going on was uh, Starbucks um, stores across the country hosted sip-ins. They called them, where you know they had supporters come and. Uh, like leave a big tip and, you know, some of them were more actions at stores that are actively seeking to unionize. Uh, so we have a piece on, um, on that kind of running down that approach and the success of Starbucks workers United um, as well as uh, I'll just give a, a shout out to an upcoming piece that it's a cover story of our most recent issue on uh, inflation and what the left's approach to inflation should be um, that really gives some great history and background um, like how much power has been concentrated in the hands of corporations and how that has really impacted pricing and that the way that we should be orienting ourselves is trying to do what, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt did back in the forties and institute some actual price controls. You know, even Richard Nixon tried to do that before, but um, that's the kind of way, you know, and to to lesser uh, impact, but you know, that's one of the things that, that happened. And then, you know, after Nixon left office, you probably remember Gerald Ford, just said screw that and said drop dead New York and you know instituted austerity but we need to reclaim some of that you know approach that has government take a more interventionist role uh, 
and stop this profiteering. Certainly what we're seeing in the oil industry, which I've talked about a lot, you know, they're seeing massive profits at the same time they're raising prices for consumers because there's no limits on their greed and the government could play a role in that. And certainly um, the voting public and taxpayers can play a role in pressuring government to do that. So that's another, um, yeah, another one we have coming up and a lot of, um, a lot of great stuff at inthesetimes.com. All right, very good. I'm going to check that article out. And I do remember uh, Richard Nixon's efforts. I just uh, entered the workplace. I was working at a packing ice cream and they froze my salary. And it, uh, I remember when the boss called, I wanted to give you a raise, but uh, we got to follow the president. I was like, what? What? How does that affect me? They froze my salary. 165 an hour. Uh, they froze it. Uh, all right, Miles, uh, thank you very much uh, for taking time to come in, uh, and join us. We didn't uh, we ran out of time. We didn't have time to talk about my beloved Bulls and my uh, uh, beloved Sky. Sky are playing uh, to get back to the championship. So I'll just close with a Sky question for you. Miles Conflesson is a diehard basketball fan, loves the Bulls, loves the Chicago Sky. And uh, so, Miles, do you think the Chicago Sky will be triumphant? and move on to the next round, which is the finals for the second year in a row. Go. Of course. This is, uh, you know, this is our time to shine, baby. We got it. Uh, Candace Parker balling out, uh, you know, that the other night, well, the other day they, they, they played in Connecticut and it was a gritty game. If anybody watched it, it was, you know, fouls everywhere and people on the floor. And that's usually how the Connecticut Sun like to play because the Sky like to play fast, you know, get the ball up the floor. The game really slowed down. It was a lower scoring game. And yet the Sky still was able to pull it out and take a 2-1 series lead. So, yeah, if they win tonight, um, they will be uh, heading to the finals. And I think we're um, ready to, uh, to head back and recrown Sky Town. Yeah, no, I, I love that uh, that game. Early on in the game, Candace Parker took got an elbow to the eye, uh, and she was in <laughs> the paper. They, she's like, oh, this is how it's going to be. This is how it's going to play. And it just brought back memories. Uh, Bulls, Pistons, late 80s, early 90s. I mean, you know, the Pistons trying to rough up the Bulls, knock them off their game, and uh, slow down the game, make the game go to w- the way they wanted it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's mental toughness uh, to play through it. Uh, I give uh, Candace Parker a lot of credit and uh, she's really stepped up big time in this series. Uh, All right, Miles, thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show. Appreciate it as always. All right. Of course. Thank you, Ben. All right. Miles Confalesson, editor writer for in these times. Also want to thank uh, Gregory Pratt who uh, led off the show. I had to bring Gregory on to talk about all the aldermen, the great resignation. Miles put that idea in my mind. I'm going to run with that one. The great resignation. Uh, Gregory Pat from the Chicago Tribune. I also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of Alton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Miles uh, and Gregory Pratt will tell you back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D. And the D stands for the marvelous. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash, go sky.